Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to musician and storyteller James Domic Jr. Growing up in Kotzebue, James played basketball. Most kids did. It was, and still is, a big part of the rural Alaska experience. In the summertime, they played all night because the sun was out. And in the wintertime, despite the cold and the ball going flat, they would still play. In 1996, James moved to Anchorage, where he continued playing basketball for a while but eventually moved on to playing music. He became as obsessed about music as he was about basketball. And after high school, he joined a band called the Whipsaws. And that's where he spent most of his 20s, playing drums all up and down the Alaska road system at almost every bar that had a stage. He says that he realized he was a storyteller from those days on the road. If something memorable happened, he would be asked to retell the story because people had a tendency to listen when he spoke. If you're looking for other Alaska podcasts to listen to, I recommend checking out Resolve. It's a series about missing and murdered indigenous women in Alaska. In it, host Alice Cunneet Glenn talks with those affected by murder and sexual assault. Here's a clip from episode two with Amos Lane, whose mother was raped and murdered in Point Hope. The full picture was never really shared with me at the time up until recently when I started asking questions about what really happened June 9, 1985, to my mother. My mom was uh, brutally tortured for many, many hours, pretty close to maybe eight or nine hours by three men in my grandma's house uh, where the crime happened. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers and even baby onesies. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to James Domic Jr. In 2019, James and his producers released Midnight Sun, a true crime podcast that explores the story of Teddy Kyle Smith, who went from being an actor to a fugitive in a quick succession of tragic events. 
What followed was a case that involved Alaska Native folklore and the United States justice system. In the podcast, James talks about how this story gave itself to him, how it showed its neck. So for two years, he and his producers worked on Midnight Sun, collecting interviews, listening to courtroom audio, writing, and just generally wrapping their minds around the case. James says that he was genuinely obsessed with Teddy's story, and that if he didn't tell it, he would regret it for the rest of his life. So here he is, James Domic Jr. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! You learned how to skateboard on the one patch of concrete at the airport in Kotzebue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the late eighties, early nineties, you know, that whole, that whole thing started taking off. And, um, you know, I, I found one of my cousin's old skateboard. Um, yeah. And we used to just try to, you know, we were, we just wanted to be part of the whole thing that was happening, you know, with, I don't know, it was the 80s or late 80s, early 90s. Everybody wanted to skateboard, you know, so mm -hmm. and we were no exception, even though we were on the kind of edge of the world. We still were affected by American pop culture and whatnot. So I wasn't any good. It was just kicking around. It wasn't anything serious. Uh, <laughs> I think if I was down here at the place where there was more concrete and around friends who were who were good, you know, and I'd probably learn a few things, but I was just... I just wanted to feel part of it, you know, so. <laughs> you know, how often were you doing stuff to feel like you were a part of, I don't know, Western culture? Yeah. I mean, it, the, at the time there was no internet. And so the, the, uh, there was a lag. Yeah. <laughs> there was a big lag from you'd what you'd see you'd see commercials for a preview of a movie. Uh, and then you would, you know that you wouldn't be able to see that movie for another two years or a year, you know, year and a half. And so we felt like we were always kind of behind, you know, even, you know, uh, it just, everything, it just took a long time to kind of get to us, but yeah, I mean, you know, we were, um, you know, forced to be Americans at gunpoint, you know, at least my ancestors were, you know, they were. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we, we do American things, you know, so I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it was, a, I think it was a lot, I mean, a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of, we, we had a TV, we had the TV now in the eighties and nineties, it came and it really was starting to be a thing cable. And all of a sudden people had kind of a thing to compare their life too and for the for better or worse especially in the village and so you know it was a, a weird time back in the 80s when you you got that tv do you remember the types of commercials or even the television shows that you were watching i i remember um i remember pbs I remember watching, being really into a show called 321 Contact. 
it was a, a some educational show um yeah i mean it was i was pretty young you know and so it was it, we had we had ratnet tv i remember and it was only three channels and then cable came and then it was all of them and we were a bunch more and so we were able to watch more more things more you know uh I don't know. It was we uh, we watched we watched a lot of uh, videos, VHF VHS videos, mm-hmm. um, and that's a thing a lot of people don't know about uh, rural Alaska. Is I think there there's some serious film buffs out there because during the winter, you know, you could either read, you could get into a, a project or something. But a lot of people started watching movies, and I'm one of those people. I, I love watching movies still to this day but i've met some serious film buffs who watched old classic movies and they know you know like i don't know it's one of those things you don't really think about but it's definitely it's true oh that's great yeah i've never thought about that i mean do you have an example of a film buff out there yeah that like one like this girl i know like she grew up in camp you know which is uh usually what that means is they they grew up in a, a cabin um on their family's land somewhere uh up north and that means they they didn't go back to the village for school okay. and so they they homeschooled out there uh and this girl had they had a TV and a VCR and I think they had a generator maybe solar panels I don't know um but she, uh, yeah, she, they, all they had was this huge cache of old VHF, VHS movies. Mm-hmm. And so they, she, she just knew, she had watched so many of these old ones, like Lawrence of Arabia and like, you know, like yeah, The Sound of Music and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and like these old John Wayne movies and these old, uh, just kind of classic movies there's just we're kind of older you know like you know we were in the 80s and 90s we wanted to watch all the new stuff but she knew all these these old ones just just because she was so isolated and when they did watch a movie it was a very special time because they couldn't let the generator go all the time i think and so they you know it was like if they're gonna let it go they're gonna watch a movie and um yeah stuff like that man you know it's like something you don't really think about people who they read a lot, especially like maybe even the Southeast Southeast people, they, they read lots of books. There's a lot of bookstores and a lot of big personal libraries and up North. It seems like it's movies. <laughs> so. Something else that I think a lot of people outside of Alaska don't know about is how big and important the basketball culture is in rural Alaska. Yeah. You played basketball, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. What was your experience like in the basketball scene in Kotzebue? Well, when I I, I when I was playing there, I learned to play there. Um, and it was everything. Um, it was uh, everything um, since the third grade on. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a part of the culture. Um, we ad- adapted it, adopted it, you know, whatever it uh, we it's you know become synonymous with village life and uh i i learned to play you know in the in the 90s and 
huge fan of the you know the 90s bulls and that whole era of jordan and you know and so like everybody wanted to play and so in the summertime we would play all night you know that mm -hmm. we would play till three in the morning because it would the sun was out and we just run and run and play and this, there were some players that were so good you'd never see them play on the teams because they'd never make the grades but some of them were so good um and then in the winter time, the snow would pile up and pile up and we would still play. It would be cold. The ball would, f the, it would be so cold. The ball would get flat. It couldn't even bounce. And we still would play. The rim would be only maybe six feet high because the snow was four feet deep. <laughs> and we would dunk and we wouldn't dribble. We would just pass. Yeah. And uh, it changed. It was just. We were obsessed. We at, at recess we would play with a frozen flat basketball on a six foot rim because we were stacked up on the snow. Um, and then you know when I got to be you know seventh or eighth grade in Kotzebue is is when I started traveling you know and traveling to the different villages around the region and playing games and getting to you know be part of that world which is a big part of the rural Alaskan experience. And uh, it was so much fun. It was so much, so competitive. It was still so friendly. And uh, it was just, um, it was just, I just, I was obsessed with it. Um, I just got into it so much. I, uh, I was tall for the village. I was tall. I was, you know, six, you know, almost six foot. And so that, they, that made me a center up because everybody's so short. Uh, and so I, I learned a big man's game, even though I'm only six foot. Uh, and so I was, I was playing a four or five position up north. But when I moved down to Anchorage in 96, after I got done with eighth grade, uh, I moved down to Anchorage in 96 and I, I went to Bartlett High School for my uh, high school. And uh, I started playing basketball there and I was not a four or five position. I was not a, you know, forward or center. I was a, uh, at the most a, a three or a two, uh, you know, not even a two. I wasn't even a shooting guard. There was much better shooters. Everybody was taller. The game was faster. And I had to, I had to adapt. Uh, my game, I played ninth and 10th grade for Bartlett. And I kind of hurt my ankle pretty good. My, my sophomore year, um, and I, uh, I tried out my junior year and I got cut and it was devastating <laughs> Really, <laughs> because I had just dedicated so much of my life to basketball and I was obsessed with it and I wanted to try to take it as far as I could. Yeah. Um, but they, one of the reasons I think they cut me is because they knew I was starting to get really into music. And I was starting to play drums and I would leave games uh, as soon as the game was done, you know, to make a gig or to make a practice or, uh, and so they kind of knew I was, you know, wasn't as dedicated as some of these other players were like the, you know, the, the guys right behind me was Mario Chalmers. He was just a year or two younger than me. He went on to be, you know, NBA champion. Yeah, Mario Chalmers. Champion. Mario yeah. Chalmers. He's <laughs> yeah. one of the best Alaskan players to ever do it. But for sure. So they were looking for people who were really serious about it because they were putting people out to college. And 
I was getting into music and, you know, uh, and I think they knew my, my ankle was, it's kind of not as, I don't know. So they just, I think they let me go and I was pretty wrecked for a little while. And then, uh, I decided just to get into music as much as I got into basketball. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I started learning to play drums at church, this church I was going to in Anchorage here. And, um, I uh, started learning how to play guitar and then eventually some bass and eventually some, you know, piano over the years. And But it all kind of started at a, at a church in Fairview um, because they had a drum set. I didn't own a drum set and they let me practice. Uh, but the condition was I'd have to play with their church group on Sundays. And so that's what I did. That's how I kind of learned to play drums. And when does the whipsaws come into the picture? The whipsaws came into the picture when I was really young. I was, I had, I had just graduated high school. I was maybe 18 or 19, 18. And I was playing guitar, I was playing acoustic guitar, and I'd go to coffee houses and do open mics. Because I had played so much drums, I was... Uh, kind of burnt out from it and I kind of wanted to like try singing and playing guitar and you know it was the late 90s man was the coffee shop scene was <laughs> it was hot it was happening you know yeah. it was part of the culture um and it was terrifying it was absolutely terrifying to me and you know I think dudes who snowboard or surf or do like dangerous things they to me the playing guitar and singing in front of people was that. Okay. It, Cause it just felt like dangerous, <laughs> you know, it felt dangerous, um, in a, in a way that was very different. Uh, just cause I had come from such a small secluded place, you know, in Kotzebue and mm -hmm. growing up in the country and, you know, hunting and fishing and camping and all that, you know, to be in a city in a downtown Anchorage, with with a guitar singing in front of strangers, you know, that was terrifying. And so that's how I met Evan Phillips. Shout out to Evan Phillips. Uh he was the, he would play these coffee shops too, these open mics back in the nineties. And it was a bunch of good players, man. There was like, you know, Marty Jones and Dan Coleron and you know Mike Gorder from Del Mag and like all these people and you know it was it was cool and evan was the only one who was playing neil young songs though um i was i would <laughs> i would cover bob dylan tunes and neil young yeah and I, I grew up my dad got me really into rock and roll um had a bunch of good tapes and so i'd listen to i knew all of, i you know and evan was the only other one who would play neil young and i was like all right this guy's cool and uh, <laughs> i i i had met uh, this girl, um, her name was her name was Annalisa Tornfeld. Annalisa Tornfeld, and she was in Barefoot Bluegrass, the original. Okay. And she knew that I had met her at the coffee shops, and she kind of figured out I played drums, and so she asked me to play drums for a gig with her uh, at the UAA recital hall, and um, I did and. All the all the Anchorage singer songwriters were there, like all the ones who are still doing it. You know, there was Jared Woods and 
Matt Hopper and Steve Bacon and all the in Evan Evan was there and so they the, they they saw me I know Evan saw me play drums there and he's like oh you fucking play drums and I was like yeah and then uh it was one open mic I think it was at the old Snow City Cafe used to have open mics yeah and it was after that I I had just gotten into some trouble I had just gotten I gotten I gotten jumped by a kind of this like they weren't really a gang but they were kind of a gang i got jumped i got stomped it was like 12 guys against me and i had to leave town and uh it's a long story you know but i don't i won't talk it just all you got to know is i got jumped and i had to leave town i went up to the village for a while and then i came back down and i was kind of jittery i was kind of jumpy uh kind of look you know i was just I had a knife on me, you know, it was okay, like, okay. it was, it was, it was, you know, I used to hang out with some rough, tough people and, uh, Evan noticed that he's like, what's up with you, man? And I told him, I was like, yeah, man, I got into a fight and I got jumped and, you know, it's, I got fucked up. I had to leave town and he just looked at me. He's like, you don't, you don't gotta be doing that, Junior. You, you don't, you don't hang, don't, you don't, you don't have to do that shit. And uh, he said, hey, listen, I know you play drums. You still got your drums? I said, yeah. He said, I'm starting a band. And he goes, I already have a guitar player, and I already have a bass player, and they're fucking good. And he goes, but we need a drummer. And he goes, do you want to try out? And I was like, well, I don't know what kind of shit. And he's like, it's, it, it'll be cool. He's like, I'm, some of my originals, we'll, we'll cover, we'll play like Neil Young songs and shit. Mm-hmm. you know and i said all right um yeah i said fuck it let's do it and at that point i hadn't played my drums in maybe a year so i had kind of just shelved them and i was just goof around playing guitar uh and so he was like the practice is at the moose's tooth brewery and i was like i'm in i'm fu- i am in <laughs> and uh so I went down there, and I'd never been that part of the Anchorage, this industrial part of town. And uh, the guitar player, Aaron Benolkin, shout out Benolkin, uh, was brewed beer for the Moose's Tooth for years, he did. And they allowed him, allowed us to practice. And so it's like this big warehouse and big vats of beer. And mm-hmm. It smells like yeast and all that, you know. And so we, we, I set up my drums. They have their amp set up. We have a small PA set up. And, we go through the rehearsals and we go through the songs and you know i'm they're a little bit older than me they're they're maybe seven eight years older maybe 10 years older some of you know so they're just a little just a little bit older than me and so uh i i was having a hard time reading them i didn't really i didn't know if i was doing good or not you know and so it was really fun they had a good sound the bass player, it was Nate Ingebretson, Nathan Ingebretson, original uh, bass player. And uh, it was the early onset of the Whipsaws was really jammy. It was really <laughs> kind of crunchy granola, like, you know. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't as twangy early on. Early on, it was jammy, like widespread panic, you know. Uh, and again, it was the 90s. That thing was coming, you know, it was like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It it was a different time. And uh so but it was fun, you know. It was fun too. 
smoke some doobies and drink a cup and drink a beer and like just play some rock and roll with some people who could really do it and uh our first gig was in girdwood at max's uh and it must have been maybe 2000 2001 or 2002 something like that and uh i was 19 they i don't know how they got they talked to the owner and they were like the owner was like, he can come, he can play, but if he if he gets caught drinking, you guys, you guys will never play in this town again. And so I was like, all right. And so we went out there, and I was so nervous my first time there. I forgot my drum stool. <laughs> I showed up to my first gig with these guys, and it was a packed Girdwood. It was a wintertime, you know, Girdwood show, all these snowboarders, skiers, you know, hippies, and Girdwood yeah. in the Girdwood in the late nineties was you know fun, um, early two thousands you know late nineties early two thousands yeah yeah for and, sure uh, and, you know and they was packed and they because they knew that Aaron Benolkin and the guitar uh, bass player Nate Ingelbretson they were in a band a jammy band called Hara before the Whipsaws and so peop, those people in Girdwood knew them are right? they're like okay these guys can play who are these other guys mm-hmm. Evan and Junior and and I was like, fuck, I got no drum chair, you know, I kind of, I can't even. And so I, I went and I was in the back and I found a five gallon pony keg. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Little, yeah. Five, and I stuffed my, my winter jacket on in that top hole. And, uh, I sat on that all night and I played the gig and it was packed. They were dancing and it was, uh, the rest, it kind of took off from there. Um, but that was my first kind of, uh, my first gig with them. That's how it kind of happened. And uh, I was 19. And I spent my entire 20s in the whipsaws, uh, playing drums all up and down the road system, here in the state, all over the place, um, and doing some couple of tours out down lower 48. Um, but... Almost every bar that had a stage, we uh, I think we we found it and played it at least once or twice. So yeah, it was a hell of a time, hell of a time, hell of a way to spend my your twenties. I'm forty now, uh, but man, it was it was a lot of fun, you know, to uh, to be in a band during that time and have it kind of slowly get bigger and bigger and you know. Um, uh, you know, we used to play the Brown Bear Saloon out in Indian all the damn time. Yeah. And uh, that small little venue like that. And we eventually we were selling out the Beartooth, you know. Um, every time we'd play, we'd sell it out and then just do big, loud, amazing shows there. And that's when it started to feel like, holy shit, I'm, we, I might be able to do this for real. Like, you know, and it, it started to like... Instead of just being like, oh, we're just a fun bar band and it's just fun to do, it started to feel like, oh man, maybe this, this could be the way out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was it was a different time, and we you know we we had a lot of fun when it lasted. Um, yeah. When you would imagine, you know, hey, this thing could could be a full time gig. Did you think about what that looked like? Yeah, you know, I loved traveling. I loved 
you know, I love, I, I had some friends who had kind of already were kind of on the next level up from us, a couple levels up like Tim Easton. And I kind of saw how he was living, how he was traveling, you know, how they put him up nice hotel. They pay him good. He play a nice venue, you know, he go and hang out with the people. And, you know, I, I kind of knew that like that was part of it. And I was into it. I really loved the traveling aspect. I loved getting in a van and going and never once turning around, uh, which was cool. And it was, you know, that's a, not too many people get a chance to do something like that. Where you, I was watching this Dave Grohl talk about it. He's like, he's like, you get up your friends, you get in a van, you get your gear, you plan out a tour and you just go. And he goes, that's, there's nothing else like it. And I was like, I know what, I know what you mean, man. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I knew it was going to involve traveling, uh, which I was into, but I was also, I was starting to have kids and, um, you know, I was like, I didn't, I was like, I can't travel as much as I want. Um, yeah. How did the whipsaws do outside of Alaska? We were pretty, uh, it was, it was, we, we were all kind of nervous. I think like wouldn't know what to expect. We did a couple of West coast tours with some Portland bands. Like I can lick any son of a bitch in the house. Uh, and with, uh, Mike D and the loyal bastards, uh, you know, they were kind of like well-known in Portland and they kind of had this, this kind of twangy kind of heavy kind of, you know, you know, this, they were kind of in the same vein as we kind of ended up where it was kind of like in the drive-by truckers world where it was, you know, like, uh, and so, um, we were accepted. All right. You know, I think people are like, Oh shit, you're from Alaska. Mm -hmm. And then what people would say was you guys really play your instruments really well. You guys must practice a lot, you know? And, uh, it's like, yeah, uh, there was a lot of practicing for sure. But, um, it was, we noticed right away that, the West Coast and the East Coast had their own scenes and they were kind of steering what was cool and what wasn't the, the coasts. And every band was, you know, either you were trying to get in on that wave of what was happening right now. Mm -hmm. And then it seemed like in the Midwest, it was more, it wasn't really like that. It was, you know, it seemed like everybody was trying to copy someone on the coast, one of the coasts. And, uh, I, yeah, it was just different, you know, like up in Alaska, we, you play a bar gig, you're the only band for all night and you, they pay you to play four hours. Mm -hmm. You go to a States stateside gig and they're like, there's five or six bands on the bill and you're lucky if you get half an hour, you know? And so, you know, so a long gig down there on that tour would be an hour. And we had come from just cutting our teeth playing four hour Leonard Skinner gigs all up and down the road system. Um, you know, we were ready for it. We, we were ready to, we were ready to put on a, a, you know, tight show, putting up, putting the best, our best songs forward. Um, but yeah, it was, people were like, yeah, you, they could tell right away that we were from somewhere else and that we weren't trying to copy anybody on the coasts, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we definitely wore our influences on our sleeve. Um, you know, we like Wilco and the drive-by truckers and Tom Petty and, you know, that kind of shit. 
Uncle Tupelo. Yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, we did some recording down in, in New Jersey, in Hoboken, New Jersey with John Angelo. He's the guy who did all the Dinosaur Junior records and Sonic Youth. And so we got a little taste of like the road and studios and kind of a little bit on the next level. And it just didn't, it just didn't work out. And, um, for various reasons, you know, just, just didn't work out. And I started playing with uh, other bands in Anchorage. Um, it was like this big music explosion that kind of happened in, you know, 2011, 12, 13. There was just this, you know, with the, with the, when the taproot kind of moved to this, to this Bernard location, there's just like so many bands started, good bands. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started playing with, with some of those bands as well. And yeah. In your mind, did any of those other bands that you played for measure up to the Whipsaws? It was just, they were, they were cool in their own way. Um, the Whipsaws, we, we, we took so many years to build a fan base. Mm-hmm. And we were playing, we, when we play shows, they would be like, highly a lot of people and bigger shows and stuff um but this other playing with these other bands like with uh, you know i played with meg mackey when that was a thing and uh who else did i sit in with um i played in a country band called with nate may and his country jumpers okay stone cold country band um and then i played with medium build when they first uh when they first kind of get started up here uh, and it was all just, you know, um, it was different. It was fun. It was just something different playing with other people and, you know, but the whipsaws would get the big gigs at the time, you know, we just, I think what happened was there at the, you know, at the, at the bear tooth, they used to have the first tap concerts and they still do, I think, you know, when, when they get back to it, but when, whenever, there was like a, a band that they had for a first tap and they canceled last minute and the, the Beartooth guys scrambled and they were like, uh, and they were like, whipsaws, can you do it? We we're like, yes. And we stepped up and it was the right night. Mm-hmm. We had the right set. We kind of won them over and it was like, but yeah, that was, it was really fun to play those Beartooth shows because anytime a, a band would cancel and they did, they do all the time, you know, um, <laughs> we'd get the call and so we'd you know it would you feel like a rock star for one you know playing a big venue and you got a green room and yeah it just felt it just felt cool it just felt like you know you're you're part of it how much do you feel like music is a form of storytelling it's a hard form of storytelling i tell you what i've written i've tried i've attempted to write some songs and they're they're okay they're not all you know they're not hits or anything and it's hard to do to tell a story that sticks with someone and paints a vivid picture in three minutes, mm-hmm. it's hard to do, and uh, which is a really fun challenge. But it's like it's and the people who do it, the people who do it right, um, man, I have so much respect for them. But yeah, music is, especially the kind of the lyrics and the kind of stuff you know. The early early Whipsaw stuff was really kind of story based, um, 
and uh, Evan would write about these characters we'd meet on the road, and so they were kind of, you know, it is a form of for for sure storytelling. You listen to John Prine, you know, who I saw up here when he came up here in Anchorage a while back. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all solid stories. You know, every one of his songs is like a masterpiece. You know, painting of somewhere in America. Um, but yeah, uh, it's hard. I know that it's hard. It's a very challenging thing to do. I tried it, wasn't very good at it, but I think it's important to try things. And even if you suck at them and, uh, you know, to just to say you did and, you know, to, I think just failing over and over at different, (laughs) at different things, I think it, I think it helps. Um, yeah, because it, you know, I think you need something to keep you. I don't know, like, uh, yeah, it's hard. Just writing a song, telling a story, three minutes. I have a lot of respect for people who can do that. And so, I eventually found out I need three hours uh, to tell the kind of stories I like to tell, and I don't, can't tell if I'm long-winded or <laughs> if that's just the way, uh, the kind of the way I like to tell stories, but. It, uh, you know, I always kind of wrote, I, I helped co-write with the Whipsaws lyrics. Mm-hmm. I was always into writing and I was into uh, English. That was one thing. One of the one of the few bonuses of having to go to a, uh, one of those village schools, Christian schools, is they made you learn English so you could read the Bible better. And so they put a lot of emphasis on learning English and not so much on like science or math, and but they really wanted you to learn English or, you know, teach you the, 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 the way it's set up. Mm-hmm. And so I, that was one of the few bonuses that I tell people, one of the few pros of that situation. Um, but, you know, kept having coming, gone through that and going through just like being you know, exposed to that kind of the, the mechanics of the English, English language really early and just really learning it. Um, I, I always loved it. I always loved writing and reading. And I knew my family were storytellers, Inupak storytellers. I knew that they were, I come from a, a long line of them, mm-hmm. but I never really was, I never really knew what, what that was all about. I started getting into it when I was in Cots and reading all these old stories and traditional Inupak stories and um, really getting into movies and really like getting into storylines and uh, you know it is it it, I've always been I've always loved writing and I've always loved reading and you know uh, and so it was just felt like a when the music stuff kind of started slowing down right when the whipsaw started slowing down we we opened for the alabama shakes at the alaska airline center mm-hmm. 2014 we were the very whipsaws were the very first band to play in the alaska airline center we were opening it was a brand new building we were opening for the alabama shakes and they were what a powerhouse they were and uh right after that it started started slowing down it started you know um started playing doing and right at the time i was doing freelance film production there was a big 
film industry that was trying to get started here in Alaska because we had these tax incentives and uh, I, I worked I worked in it you know for maybe five or six years um, I was playing music in these bands and then when these opportunities came up I would do whatever I could you know as an assistant you know person a PA public a personal assistant a camera department assistant I would help out with uh, location scouting or craft services or uh, just driving a lot of driving uh, any any one of these positions that needed to be filled I would say yeah I can do it you know I'd be like the boom guy at the audio um, uh, I was a grip on an Apple commercial you know like you know we, we were working on like some of these big all the same crew Anchorage crew Alaska crew we'd we'd all get hired on the same things because there's such a small group of people doing it mm-hmm. and we work on these high budget uh, commercials. Uh, photo shoots, reality shows, a couple features, but I got to see how these things are made, just from, and I got to see how they these people talk and how they think because I had to drive around these producers and directors, and some of them well known, some of them not, and uh, I got to see the how meticulous it is to make a movie or to shoot anything. Mm-hmm. It's just this huge army of people and it's so every little detail. And um, that's where I really saw how, you know, to real just, and just hearing these people talk, they, when you're their assistant, they talk like you're not there. You're just driving them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, they, they you, you, you might as well be a robot, you know, but they, I could hear them, <laughs> the producers and their directors having a conversation to each other about the story arcs or the dynamics or, you know, what was strong, what was weak and, you know, budgets and, you know, who's got what and what the light's doing and, mm-hmm. you know, and so I don't know. I just, I got to like, just kind of learn about these things from listening and, um, just uh, driving these guys around, really. Um, but when that kind of, uh, in Juno, they cut the tax incentives. And so the fil- all the film stuff, there's still some here, but it's really, you, it's, not, it's not like how it was. And uh, that's when I, I started working, I started getting, getting other jobs here in Anchorage, working for nonprofits working for a public radio station here in town. And uh, that's where I met Isaac Kestenbaum. Uh, and he's one of the two people that uh, helped write Midnight Sun with me. And if I hadn't worked at that radio station, I, I, don't, I would have never met him, I don't think. Maybe I would have, but it wouldn't have gone down like how it did. I know I'm a little late on this, but I recently mm-hmm. listened to that podcast, Midnight Sun, uh-huh. and I feel like you really captured the essence of Alaska, which in my mind is this combination of spirituality, bluntness, and also a beauty that can be both wonderful and also terrible. Yeah. How much thought went into how you were going to tell that story? Uh, well, it, it was one of these things where I knew... I knew this story 
and I felt like I was the only one who could see this angle. I felt like everybody was passing up on it. And on it, I felt like one of those kids on the movie Slumdog Millionaire when they're digging through the huge pile of trash and they're at the dump and they're going just digging through garbage trying to find something to sell, to make money, to live. Mm -hmm. I felt like me spotting this story, it was like this shiny little glimmer in this big pile of trash, this big, you know, you know, this big, it was just, you know, cause you, it's just, it's not, I'm not saying that up North is trash and I'm not saying that, but a lot of the experience that's happened through forced assimilation, colonization, you know, it's been rough for native people and, you know, to, there are people who live through the boarding school era and stuff. So when I say trash, that's what I mean. The, the bad things that happened to my people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like I said, I was working in the film industry and these people knew this guy because they were they worked with him. And they said, you know this guy? And I said, yeah, no, I don't. But they're like, well, he's from where you're from. And uh, my dad's a mechanic. Has been for years. That's what he did in Kotzebue. That's what he did here. And he, the one of the two brothers that were shot, the Buckle brothers, Paul Buckle, he's an airplane mechanic in Kotzebue. And so my dad kind of knew him. And so when those two Buckle brothers were in town here, uh, healing after, you know, being shot, mm -hmm. uh, one of my dad's coworkers, who was also from Kotzebue area, went and visited them in the uh, hospital. And they told him all the inside info, what happened in that cabin on the squirrel. Mm -hmm. And he came back, told my dad, my dad told me, and I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is, this should be a movie. Like, this is terrifying, you know, like this, I, I kept like, and so I would go on the road with like uh, Bumula. I used to play drums with Bumula. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of downtime. And I remember being on Kodiak Island and we were doing like, they do like all sorts of educational shows during the day. We like, and we were like flying to a small village and doing something for the school kids in the daytime and we had this we had a, like a half an hour to kill we were just chilling after lunch and i started kind of we were just kind of talking shit and i started telling him about this story about teddy kyle smith story and my boys phil you know and bum you they're they're like my brothers man you know and so but they have big energy mm -hmm. and so when i knew when they were sitting down at these these tables in this elementary school cafeteria and they were like they were so into the story it had their attention mm -hmm. they were like well, what happened next you know and they're they're they have big energy they're usually bouncing around you know but i, I that's when i really knew <laughs> i was like oh my god there's something here there's a, something really here it's not just me seeing this and uh i remember driving with Tim Easton, shout out Tim Easton. He comes to Alaska all the time. I remember driving with him to a gig to Hope and I remember telling him, I was like, man, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make this movie. And I told him the whole story and he's like, yeah, that's something. Uh, and he was like, maybe like, an, maybe make it like an episodic or like a Netflix thing where there's, you know, 
So he, the, the, my, my friends who were these musicians who I, my, who I really respected, they were like into it. So I was like, okay, there's something here. Mm-hmm. And I had, was working at the radio station and it was a Friday afternoon. It was like this class. It was like Friday afternoon. It was like four o'clock. And we were just waiting for the, you know, the time, the five o'clock to come around. And Isaac was working there for the summer. And he asked me, he was like, you know, any good stories, you know, any good stories that would make a good, like podcast, you know, like serial or S town. And I was like, well, actually there's this thing I've been sitting on and it, it's been haunting me. It comes to me and it comes to me and it, this, this story. And it's like, it's one of those things where if I didn't tell it, I would, I would regret it. I think for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. because it, what I was always in the back of my mind, this is a good story. There's something here. Um, and I remember telling it to Isaac, the whole Teddy Kyle Smith story, and him going like, yeah, dude, that's something. We should do that. We should do, and I was thinking in my head, well, I want to make it a movie. But after seeing how hard these movies are to make and how it takes an army of people and this huge budget, I was like, that's too many moving parts for me. But I knew that if I made it into a podcast, it would be, it could be doable. And I could tell the story the way I wanted it to. And I had just recently listened to S-Town um, by Brian Reed. Mm-hmm. And it was so good, man. I was so floored by how they could take a real story that really happened and let the information unfold like a movie and just leave all these questions and they unfolded it it was very cinematic the way they produced it and they very leaned into the theater of the mind which is i which is a something i like i enjoy is like it's part of native storytelling you know is the theater of the mind where you know you just that's all you can see it's not written down you're not reading it when someone's reading something, you know, it sounds like they're reading something. Uh, but when they're just talking and, you know, describing and I don't know, S-Town floored me. And I, you know, I knew it was like, okay. So I knew Isaac and his, uh, his partner make podcasts. And I knew that they were audio producers. They lived in New York City at the time. And uh, there was this conference in, in Phoenix shortly after I told Isaac this story and Isaac and his uh, partner was going to be there. And uh, Ira Glass was there and Ira Glass had this, this part of the presentation where uh, he had people pitch to him. Like he, you could pitch to him. There's like from four thirty six thirty, 30, Ira will be taking, you know, ideas. And uh, my buddy Isaac was like, you gotta go, t- you gotta go tell him this art, Teddy Kyle Smith story. Mm-hmm. And so I make my way up there and uh, I do it. I tell him, I pitch him this story and he, he's trying to, he, long story short, he's, uh, he try he was trying to knock holes into it. You know, he's a good producer. Uh, but at the end of my pitch, he goes into the other room and he comes back and he hands me his business card. No way. And he was like, you call me. This is, there's something here. I don't know what, but, you know, he, he, and I was the only one who he gave the card to. That's great. And, you know, uh, Ira was one of the guys who produced S-Town. 
And so I was like, holy shit. And that like freaked me out. That's when I knew that I was sitting on something like, mm. and I got so freaked out by Ira Glass being showing interested. I never called him, man. I ghosted Ira Glass. <laughs> and to this day, I always wondered like, what would happen if I called him? Um, but I knew that if all I needed was Isaac and Josie to help make this. And I knew that they were, they had been to Alaska a bunch. They knew about Inupak culture a bunch. They've been to the villages a bunch. They were in it for the right reasons and they were good at what they do. Um, and so we pitched it and uh, we pitched it to Audible and Audible was like, yeah, man, let's, let's do this. And so, you know, it took a, a year or so to capture. We sent you know, spent about a year just capturing interviews and going through all the Alaska has these rules where you can get information from the courts really easy. And, uh, so we spent a year about a year doing that and then we spent a year writing it and so you know when teddy kyle smith who's the subject of midnight sun is caught on the river and brought in for questioning in your narration you say that's when the world of ancient inupiaq folklore collides with the world of american justice i really liked how you sum that up and then where you went from there, that there is still a lack of acknowledgement of Alaska Native folklore in Alaska courts. Do you think that because you spent so much time with this story, you're more aware of that? Or were you always aware of that? I mean, I knew that there were discrepancies. It was not hard to see just growing up in it. Um, but really digging into the research for the story, it really brought it really to kind of more of a comprehensive light. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I learned a lot. I, all I knew early on was that this was a good story. Mm -hmm. And so it, I, I knew that there's just, you know, it's just, it's just, just, that's just how it is. That's just how it's been. Um, with with the courts out there and the way the way justice been served through rural Alaska over time, um, and so, but I haven't really did did a deep dive in the story. Was a reason you know gave a good reason kind of dig in and just learn more about it. And I was just genuinely genuinely curious, like genuinely obsessed about this story. You know, I would listen to hours of. Uh, courtroom audio of the trial and just listening for something that was good and my, my friends did too and yeah I was just obsessed with it and I wanted to make the story the way people made movies and I wanted the information to unfold the way people the way it does in a movie and um and I wanted to make it the opposite of reality show and I, cause I had worked on reality shows and I knew how staged all of them are. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make the opposite of reality show, just authentic, no bullshit, no stage, nothing staged, just one interview, you know, interview someone, that's it. One take warts and all find something, make it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was kind of into that and it was like, I didn't want to. I just wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to tell what really happened. I, and I was genuinely curious, genuinely obsessed. 
So I think that's, you, you kind of hear it. People have commented or they've written to me from all over the world. You know, I get these messages. Uh, it's crazy, uh, you know, and they're like, you know, this, this story moved me. This, uh, you know, this, you, you, you keep doing what you're doing. And I'm just like, holy shit, because this is the first thing I've ever done, you know. Um, and so uh, I didn't expect it to do as good as it did. It, it, you know, when it when we released it, we released it on October, on Halloween of 2019. And for six weeks, it was the number one. It was on the New York Times bestseller list uh, at number one in the nonfiction audiobook category for six weeks. And then it went on to be the second most download it's second most downloaded audible original of all time that's great and i had no idea no idea it was going to do you know <laughs> so um yeah it was uh you know it was a it was a long like i said it two two years of just completely obsessing over this one story hmm. and uh putting it out there and you know it's like one of those things where it's like I haven't, there was no Inupak movies or Inupak books or podcasts that kind of, you know, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I, if, if I wanted to hear one, I'd have to make it, mm -hmm. make it yeah. myself, you know? And I was like, all right. And that's how I guess how this works. But what I found was people are really genuinely interested in hearing authentic stories and people are really ready the time is now i feel is ready for people to really hear native people tell their stories on their own terms mm -hmm. and uh because if you know it's it's just that's the reception i've got um so yeah man it's i didn't expect it to do as good as it did mm -hmm. uh you know and i i'm just super duper proud of it man it's i'm influenced by you know on the project i was influenced by brian reed of s-town for sure you know s-town was kind of this southern gothic piece and i wanted to make the opposite i wanted to make a northern gothic kind of dark you know murder and you know that kind of shit true crime and um brian reed uh you know um Tupac, Mark Twain, those guys, they just told it how it was yeah. from, their, from their standpoint. And I respect it. So I was kind of taking that energy and writing with it, running with it. And But I couldn't have done it with, uh, without my partners, Isaac Kestenbaum, Josie Holtzman. They're just great at what they do. And they're dear friends. They travel to the villages with me. And they're just, it, it wouldn't have been what it is if it wasn't for them. And, you know, they're, they deserve all sorts of credit. And they did so much and they're so good. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where Alaska Native folklore is acknowledged in Alaska courts? I don't know. That's a good question. That was one of the things that kind of drew me in. Um, I was a sucker for John Grisham books, uh, you know, and I... I would, I would read, I read all of them. I read all his books. And so I, people like these legal, the legal aspect of stories because there's so much structure. They know what's going to happen next. Uh, 
but I don't know, you know, it's the, the, the American justice system, the court, the, the way the courts rule, it's, it's not really based in anything like that. Um, I don't know. They, it's, it's, I think it's different. I don't know. I don't know if they'll ever kind of, I think Teddy's, Teddy's case was the closest it'll get because they were talking about it. They were like, seriously, they still are, you know, mm -hmm. it's in these court documents, in Yakuns, you know, it's in the <laughs> judges are saying it, you know, it's like, just, mm -hmm. it, it was weird, you know, to me, because it, it was only people up north who I knew talking about it. Now I get these people who are, you know, Caucasian folks down in Anchorage, down, you know, they're judges and lawyers and they're, they're talking about it. It was like, whoa, that's different. You don't see that every day. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I, I, you know, I have no idea what the solution is. I know that before statehood, they had a, a roaming judge, a circuit judge. He would travel to these villages and once a month or so, and he'd have, they'd do court there. But, at, you know, I don't know what the solution is. All I know is what I saw the problem being, um, just the, it's just, you know, we were forced to be American, but we're not allowed to be all the way. You know, we, we, part of being an American is you get to vote. You also get part of being an American is you get to serve on a jury. It's how we exercise these different branches of government. Um, so I don't know. It's one of the things It's just maybe Alaska is too wild for it, too big for it. I don't know. You give this great comparison to Christianity in the podcast and the virgin birth and walking on water and how people believe that, but then they dismiss Alaska native beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I, I've gone through my own personal um, journey with church and um, the religion and you know growing up I was indoctrinated into Christianity and um, so I've been on my own my whole life been on this own journey of through it and uh, yeah I just I just I just thought that was a funny thing to point out you know I just was like Let's just, I, I don't, I just felt like, <laughs> I think I just felt like calling it out. Because um, then, you know, what? how different is it really? And it's, you know, they're, they're, those are old stories. Ours are old stories, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't knock anybody for their own personal faith. Like if they, if that helps them, then that, that's okay. That's so they, they can do that. That's fine. If it helps them, if it gets them through the night, if it helps them be a better person, I think it's fine. Mm -hmm. But the way that they handled and dealt with native people uh, is, is, is a hard pill for me to swallow. You know, and so I, I don't know. It's one of those things where I just, I felt like pointing it out. It, there's a, like a spiritual aspect to the, to the land to the land up north, to the wild land mm -hmm. that feels more real to me than inside a church or something, you know, but that's just me. And, you know, I, like I said, I don't knock people for their own personal faith. If they, if they you know, um, 
but I wanted to call it like I saw it and be like, what's up with this? You know, you guys, you believe that, but won't believe this, you know, what is what we believe this, you know? So I don't know. It's uh, there was a bunch of those while we were writing it that just kind of happened. So there's this point in the podcast where you talk about going to the premiere of on the ice which is a movie that follows a seal hunting trip that goes wrong in Utkjavik, formerly known as Barrow. And your reaction to seeing that movie was almost indefinable. You said that you're part of a population that's not represented in the media. And when you do see your culture on the big screen, it's hard to explain. Yeah, It's like a weird kind of validation. It seems like you're never in control of your own story as a native. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that feeling, not being in control of your own story? Yeah, I mean, it's starting to happen now. There's more native writers, there's more people who are trying to, who are getting control of the narrative, but before it was always someone else. It was always an outsider. I mean, Alaska's, you know, essentially a resource extraction colony. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, stories, are no different than the oil or gold or timber or fish or tourism. It's it's an, just a, it's another thing that people come here to take to make money on. Somewhere else they spend their you know. And so I don't know the the peop, the, the way that America Native Americans Alaskan natives were portrayed in movies and in TV and culture was very stereotyped. We're very in the, in a box. Mm-hmm. And when he started seeing native writers make their own movies, I was like, okay, you know, it's time, it's time, it's time. Like when, when I saw On the Ice, that was a huge inspiration to me to try to make a movie, you know, or try to write something because I was like, holy shit, they're listening mm-hmm. to his story. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just one of those things, man. It's just, it's just how it's been for a long time. TV in Hollywood, maybe a hundred years, you know, or so. And so we're, we're finally getting to the point where we're, we're writing and telling our own story and on our own way, you know, and it's, and we're finding there's an audience for it. You know, there's people who are like, yeah, let's, let's hear these stories. It's a whole new bag, a whole new world. A lot of people don't know what it, what the, what life is like up North. So I I, I kind of take them in because uh, I I feel you know I'm like I'm an insider up there and so they I take them into this world they have an inside view of this world that they would have never gone to so I don't know I just I I I was impressed and, and inspired by these other native writers who are telling their own stories like Andrew Okpia McLean who did On the Ice mm-hmm. um, like Sherman Alexi was another native writer i just you know love um so yeah i mean you 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 know it's like it's like tonto and the lone ranger it's fucking you know it's it's all that shit it's all it's the way hollywood portrays us or portrayed us you know and so but it's starting to switch around you know with with with, uh like the success of uh reservation dogs that recently came out you know it's Mm -hmm. starting to it's it's starting to happen and it's exciting to be um a 
part of this wave, even if I'm just like a drop, a little droplet, you know? <laughs> so. I read part of this interview between you and photographer Brian Adams, where you said that you're the great grandson of the last great Inupiaq storyteller, Paul Monroe. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to hear him tell a story? Never. No, he, he passed before my time. Um, but I always heard about him and I knew about his book and my family was always quick. They would always let us know he was a storyteller. He was the best. And people would find out that my family were the Monroes and they would be like, Oh yeah. And he's like, Oh yeah. Um, I never met him. I only knew him through this book that was written in the sixties. An anthropologist went to the village of Notak where he was from. My grandfather didn't speak English. And through the help of, through the help through an interpreter, this anthropologist wrote word for word, even if it was broken village English, wrote word for word my my great grandfather's stories. And so I, I was only connected to him through these stories, through this book. It's called The Eskimo Storyteller, Folk Tales from Notak, Alaska. And uh, that's where my family's kind of originally from, Notak, Point Hope. Um but we all kind of lived in Kotzebue at the time. So I knew that he was revered and he had a good memory. And what I learned recently is that one of the reasons why people liked him to tell stories is he could do accents. And it's not something that you guys can understand, but like the Inupiaq language and dialects all throughout the northern part of Alaska, everybody speaks the language a little bit differently. And so if the story was happening in a Point Hope way, he could tell the story, make the characters who were from Point Hope sound like they're from Point Hope. Mm -hmm. If the characters were from South, like to Shishmaraf area or Nome, he could make them sound like that. So that was one thing I just recently learned I thought was kind of cool. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, but, you know, he was, um, I knew he was really tall for an Inupiaq man. That's what I hear from him. Um, but, you know, he's one of the big inspirations for me to kind of dive into this world of just accepting like this, that's what my family did. Uh, maybe I should try it and give it a whirl. You know, like my great grand, my, my grandfather on my dad's side, he's from Wisconsin. He's a mechanic. My dad's a mechanic. I never got into it. You know, I never... <laughs> I can't twist the ranch, so. <laughs> and your dad was also a storyteller, right? In his own right, you know. Okay. Yeah. Not my dad. My dad's a white guy from Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah, he's awesome. And dad's awesome. He he's one of the reasons I made Midnight Sun because me and him would geek out about this, the Buckle Brothers surviving this whole ordeal, and we just we geek out about this whole story, and we'd all say the same thing: "Man, it should be a movie. It should be a movie." Was there a point when you realized that you were a storyteller? It it wasn't like a it wasn't like black and white. It just kind of was like it just kind of dawned on me that one day, like oh, I think it was in a band van because we'd we would we would go into a town, we'd do the gig, and then the next day we kind of like talk about what happened the night before or something crazy would happen after the gig or one of the door guys had a funny voice or 
something crazy happened afterwards, you know, funny. And, mm-hmm. and we'd bump into our friends the next town and we'd, we'd go to someone would go to tell them, you know, like, Oh, crazy shit happened in Portland last night. And junior, come here, tell, tell them what happened. And then uh, that's when I was kind of like, ah, people, people like it when I, <laughs> people tend to listen when I kind of, you know, hold court and spin the yarn a little bit. And I don't know. Uh, that's when I kind of knew it was like, oh, okay. It's, but you know, for this, for the midnight sun thing, it was it doing the whole hike out into the mountains and floating back in the Squirrel River. That was like a transform transformative thing, where I kind of, uh, it just felt different. There's this thing you say in the podcast that really resonated with me. It was how a story gives itself to a storyteller mm-hmm. and how it shows its neck. Mm-hmm. I've been interviewing people and writing stories since high school. And I feel like I've had so many moments where a story has given itself to me as well. Do you remember the first time a story showed itself to you? Yeah, not not like anything specifically it just it's just one of those things where it, i'm always kind of genuinely curious about these things and so when i learn start like what what would happen to this person and i dig a little bit more and i find a little piece of info I'm like whoa and i dig a little bit more and i find more info about it like whoa <laughs> you know like then yeah. then you're like oh there's shit there's something here man you know like so that's what I kind of felt like. I kind of felt like just hearing from the, my dad's mechanic friends about the buckles talking at Providence Hospital about how they survived this crazy actor. And then my, my friends from the music industry or the film industry being like, you know this guy? He shot two people. He's an actor. And, you know, I was like, whoa. Like no one else i felt had this info i think it was just me and my dad who kind of knew this full story because mm-hmm. every time a news article would come out about it in the adn or anything i would just read every single piece about it uh, anytime there was a news clip i would just be like whoa because you know i grew up out on the land out there and usually when those the buckles shouldn't be alive like they when stuff like that happens, that people don't walk away, and so that was extraordinary to me. I was like, "Whoa, they m- survived." Uh, that was the, one of the biggest things to me. Like, and the fact that they didn't know that he was the bad guy and he was acting—it just there were so many layers to the story, and I felt like if I did it right and I braided them into something, it would be so strong, stronger than any any one of these stories on their own. And so Midnight Sun was like, it was like braiding, you know, it was like taking all these different angles and making them cross in a symmetrical way and kind of writing myself into the story a little bit because it was, it was kind of easier to write myself into the story than to be like, teaching people about Alaska and I think it would have felt more like a lecture but if I was saying it was about me and so you know it 
I kind of wrote myself into it just because I was I was genuinely, genuinely curious. And I think people hear that. They hear how obsessed I am about it and they, they kind of latch on. But I really think what made people really stick around and listen to it is they can tell that I'm going for authenticity. I'm not going for a staged reality show shit. This is just like I wanted to make something as real as possible. And I think underneath the layer, I think people vibe check that. And they're like, okay, there's what it's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, I can't believe it's done, you know, what it's done, you know, and it's, uh, it's currently evolving into a, um, another thing I can't really elaborate too much on at this point. Um, but I've been working with some people and, uh, to kind of take it to the next level. Um, I've just had some interest from, from, from certain places. So I can't talk about it too much just yet, but hopefully in the near future I can. So I'm really excited about it. All that's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Have any stories recently showed themselves to you? A little bit. Yeah. Nothing like this, nothing with all the elements of this, and nothing ever will. It's its own thing with you know with with but there's been some there's been some stories that have come across my some people some friends have sent me some stuff and but some other things have happened i where I'm like, oh, that's pretty interesting, but yeah, it's nothing like that though. That's it's gonna be its own thing. It's its own thing. It's gonna be its own thing. Uh, and I hope one day that my great grandchildren will take this and do something with it too, like the way I took my great grandfather's stories in his books and I did something with it. Mm. Maybe you know, hopefully my my family will keep doing something with some, you know something. I don't know what, but. Um, yeah, man. It, it, <laughs> I wanted to make something that uh, was just so village, so Inupat. As I, I just knew it was, it would, it would be so unique to other people from around, from the states or from other parts of the world, other walks of life. Well, James, that does it for my questions, man. Okay, cool. Right on. This has been awesome. And yeah. we did it in under three hours. <laughs> right on, man. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for, thanks for, you know, having me, uh, be on to, to interviewing me. And I haven't done much, much press on, on it. Uh, we released it in 2019 and then the spring of 2020, the whole world changed. And, yeah. you know, but I think we put it out right at the nick of time because a lot of people had a lot of time on their hands and a lot of people listened to listened to it during the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm I feel honored that they chose to listen to my story to distract them from this crazy world and uh, and thank you for uh, for inviting me on, man. Appreciate it. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, nah, not really. I you know I it's. I'm a lifelong Alaskan and I'm really proud to be here and live here and raise my family here. And, you know, I'm not leaving anytime soon. And I'm, 
I slowly find new things to get obsessed about and <laughs> to uh, to work on and stuff. And so I hope people start keep you know listening for, to my stories as I put them out. I definitely have some stuff that will be coming out here soon, um, relatively soon ish. So just keep an eye out, keep an ear out, but an eye out for sure. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 